Keeping kids safe from predators is something that I hope is on everybody's radar. But sometimes we don't correctly judge who is a threat to our kids and who isn't. The Jerry Sandusky scandal and Penn State football's possible cover-up that broke just over a decade ago may never have even come to light if one of his victims hadn't decided to be silent no longer. Jerry coached under the legendary Joe Paterno from 1969 to 1999. We're going to talk about Aaron Fisher's story and how we can become more discerning to increase safety for our children and children in our community. Hey, everybody. Welcome to The Unlovely Truth. I'm your host, private investigator Lori Morrison, and we're going to dive into another story from the world of true crime today. Then we'll see where it intersects with our faith. I hope you'll join forces with me to answer what I think is every Christian's calling, and that's to be a different kind of PI, a person of impact. We'll talk about a practical way to do that after we investigate today's case. This is Season 3, Episode 46. The book I picked for this week is Silent No More, Victim Number One's Fight for Justice Against Jerry Sandusky by Aaron Fisher. And we've got a very special guest, Julie Lowe. She's the author of the book Safeguards, Shielding Our Homes and Equipping Our Kids. It is just so full of great safety information, which you know I love. So we're going to share some of that with you this week to help all of you keep the kiddos in your life just a little bit safer. You know, I read a lot of books for the podcast, and this one really impressed me as being one of the most unique perspectives that I've ever seen in a book format. The story is told not only by the author, Aaron Fisher, but also in part by his mom and in part by his therapist. Each one has a unique perspective on things, which means each one's going to give us something different to learn. Chapter one begins with Dawn, Aaron's mom. She admits that looking back, She wonders how she could have missed what Jerry Sandusky was doing to her son. And to be honest, when we're reading this and talking about it, that's probably what a lot of us are wondering. And that's why it's so important to have Aaron's therapist's perspective. Mike is an expert on the issue of child sexual abuse, and he knows all about how pedophiles like Jerry Sandusky find and groom their victim. He knew how to ingratiate himself with Dawn, giving the single mom someone who her son could look up to. Don met Jerry's wife. He was a hero in the local community. He was someone people trusted. The local school had even recommended that Aaron attend a summer camp that Sandusky ran called the Second Mile. Aaron had just finished the fourth grade. Aaron loved the camp and went back the next year when he was 11. And that year, Jerry took a special interest in Aaron. When camp was over, he asked Dawn if he could take Aaron to a Penn State football game with some other kids. She was a little hesitant because she didn't really know this man. But friends and family seemed awed that someone of Sandusky's stature in the world of college football would take an interest in Aaron, and so they really encouraged her to let him go. Aaron didn't know it at the time, but during therapy sessions with Mike, he's learned that this was all part of a plan, an evil plan that Jerry Sandusky had laid out to get what he wanted from Aaron. All Aaron knew was that he seemed to be Jerry's favorite kid at camp, and he liked that. But it wasn't long before the attention started getting uncomfortable. Aaron had always been taught, like a lot of us were, and like probably most of us taught our kids, we should respect adults' rules and do what they tell us to do. Jerry began inviting Aaron over to his house. 
His wife was always there, so it seemed safe to Don and even to Aaron. Aaron loved the pool table, the dartboard, the air hockey table, and everything else in the Sandusky's basement that a young boy would love. It was what else went on in that basement that Aaron couldn't tell anyone about. Growing up, Aaron's family life hadn't been the most stable. He told himself that what Sandusky was doing must be normal. Aaron did like him. He felt like he had to be overreacting to the things that he didn't like about Jerry. Aaron was so young. He was really too young to understand that he could stand up for himself to an adult. As the years passed, he didn't know why, but he was beginning to deal with a lot of anger. He just wanted to be a good kid, but he knew he was being really disrespectful at home as he got older. Deep down, he wanted his mom to stop what was happening to him, even though he had never told her about it. He was mad at Jerry Sandusky's wife. He felt like she should know, even though she made a point to never, ever go down in that basement. He was mad at his teachers, who would let Jerry sign him out of school without ever asking why. They just let it happen because he was Jerry Sandusky. Aaron was mad at the psychologist his mom took him to. That person said, oh, he's just acting out because of his age and being a boy. By the time Aaron was 15, he tried to get himself out of Jerry's life. And that wasn't going to be an easy thing to do. Jerry began to follow Aaron home from school. He called Aaron repeatedly. Counselors at Aaron's school couldn't understand why he didn't want to leave the school with Jerry anymore and why Aaron's grades were slipping. No one could fathom that Jerry Sandusky might be a predator until Aaron told them, you're going to want to buckle up here, set down any drink you might be holding. Once Aaron disclosed his abuse, his mom asked the school counselors if they were going to call the police. They told her she needed to go home and think about whether they really wanted to do that. Now, I have no idea if school personnel in Pennsylvania at that time were required to report claims of abuse to police. But even if they weren't, shame on them for trying to cover this up. Dawn and Aaron left, and she called someone she knew in the local Big Brothers Big Sisters organization to ask for help and guidance. This wonderful woman took them to a local county organization that protected children. That's where they met Mike. Mike Gillum was a staff psychologist who thought he'd seen it all in the 10 years he'd worked with abused children. As Aaron learned to trust him over the course of many, many therapy sessions, Mike realized this was the worst case of child abuse he'd ever seen. Aaron pleaded with Mike to keep him safe from Jerry Sandusky. It took years for Aaron to actually feel safer emotionally and also years for the legal system to make Aaron and so many other boys safer physically. That happened on June 22nd of 2012, when Sandusky was found guilty on 45 counts of sexual abuse of young boys. At this time, the earliest possible release date for Jerry Sandusky is October 4th, 2042. Since he'll be 98 years old then, if he's still alive, we can hope that he will never harm a child again. I want to share another safety tip today, and I want it to be about our topic, child sexual abuse. And this is not explicit in any way, so you can use it with a child of any age. Just let them know that it's okay for them to have boundaries about their bodies. If there's a family member or a person from church or whoever that they don't want to hug, for example, don't make them. Let them know that it's okay for them to say no. 
And that it's okay for them to tell you if someone hasn't respected their boundaries about being touched, even in a friendly way. And it's also a great opportunity to teach them to respect when other people have personal boundaries. Now I want you to hear from my guest, Julie Lowe. She's going to join us to talk about even more ways to keep our kids safe from her book, Safeguards, Shielding Our Homes and Equipping Our Kids. Julie, I'm so happy you were able to join us today. I love your book. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here. You know, I think people take for granted issues of personal safety, safety with our kids, safety with maybe our aging parents or neighbors. And so I love the chapter title for number two that you chose. Worry and denial are not safety skills. Yeah. But that's where a lot of us want to retreat. Why do you think that is? Maybe because it's instinctive of us. I just think maybe it's human nature that we are trying to figure life out on our own apart from from any wisdom. And so that's why I think it's so important to talk about these things because the more we talk about them, the more we equip ourselves, the more we equip young people to know how to navigate the perils of this world. I love that because another point that I think you make is we like to equate worrying with caring. The more we worry about our kids, that means we really love them. We're really interested in their well-being. But I think on a higher level, real caring is when you are preparing yourself and your kids. Oh, that's a hashtag right there. Caring is preparing. (laughs) Yeah. What would you say is the single most important thing that we can do to prepare our kids to keep them safe, as safe as we can in this broken world? I think giving them the ability to discern good from evil, that's, that's the foundation for everything that kids, when they learn what right and wrong is, good from evil, and we teach them to discern that, then we're giving them the best safety skill to start out with. And our culture doesn't like to say that there are right things and there are wrong things, does it? No, correct. I mean, that's distinctively a Christian worldview that says there is right and wrong. There is good and bad. And you know what? The Bible doesn't shy away from evil and calling things evil and mistreatment and wicked. And so to help our kids navigate that and to be able to discern that gives them the skills then to be able to walk into many situations. And although it might be confusing and they might not know how to immediately make sense out of it, What you're doing them is you're equipping them with the skills to try to discern and ask the right questions and know how to navigate it. And the Bible tells us over and over and over and over to not be afraid or to not at least live in a spirit of fearfulness. And so I want people to really understand your book doesn't just put everybody in a panic. It really pulls us out of that because I think when we feel empowered, when we feel like we have that knowledge that discernment, that gives us confidence as well as concrete ways to be more safe. Would you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the worst takeaway from this book would be to to instill fear in people. Rather, it's to say, what, what are the dangers out there and how do we navigate them? So it's not living in denial. It's not worrying about what might happen, but it's learning to discern what's around us and to evaluate. That's another skill, teaching kids to evaluate behavior. And that when we do that, we raise confident, competent, equipped kids, not fearful ones. 
And your book really is super practical. I mean, you do give us great statistics, great facts, things that we can use to put context around what you're teaching. And I think that's so important. But when you do have to look at those difficult things, like the facts about child sexual abuse, bullying, online porn, date rape, all those kind of things, which one do you think parents are maybe most easily in denial about? The technology and social media piece. I think parents are just utterly either unaware or oblivious to how much it is pursuing our kids and how much our kids are being touched by this on a regular basis. I think you make a great point because I know when I talk to parents, they're always really, really shocked. They'll tell me that, well, you know, I have my kid's password for their Facebook and for their Instagram so I can be sure what's going on. And I'll say, well, what about their Finsta? Mm. And they're like, they're what? And I'm right. like, they're fake Instagram account. <laughs> they don't give you the password to that one. Right. And if your child doesn't have one, their friends do. Right. What kind of conversations can we have with them to kind of draw out those those issues? Yeah. Well, opening it up for one and acknowledging that those things are real and possibilities and even likelihoods. So even kids that don't have social media or don't have phones are getting on school buses and sitting next to kids who do and they're being exposed to pornography and things on social media and Instagram. So we can live in this naiveness that says, my kids don't even have a phone, so I don't have to worry about this. Instead of saying, if your kids are going out into the world and they're associating with their peer group and they're in a school environment, yes, they're being exposed to these things. So I need to be proactive, not reactive. I need to proactively shape the way my children think about these things before it hits them. And then after it hits them, be willing to engage with them and help them process it and make sense out of their experiences. That's such a great point about proactivity. And I think too, something that just saturates your entire book is a feeling of intentionality. Yeah. We really have to take steps instantly. You know, what you're telling a six-year-old, once that six-year-old is 10, they need to really be told the same thing, but given more age-appropriate context. Absolutely. And then again, when they're 12 and 14 and, yeah, you know, just whenever things come up in the media, yeah. I think that's a great way to say, you know, hey, what, what might you do if you had a situation like this with you or one of your friends? Because kids grow and develop. And so it's not a one-time conversation. It's an ongoing conversation, helping them the process in each stage of their life. I also love to when you shared about not just our fears as parents, but the fact that our kiddos have fears mm -hmm. and how to navigate those. Yeah. And we all know, you know, kids are different. Some kids have are instinctively more fearful kids and they need help and parenting and nurturing to not live in fear. Other kids have no fear at all and they're risk takers. And sometimes we need to rein them back in and give them a healthy level of awareness of their surroundings. And so that's the wisdom of knowing your own kids where parents need to be an expert at knowing their own children and making sure that the way we are equipping them doesn't instill more fear or doesn't try to drive a fearful model of parenting into our kids because either we'll, we'll do the same damage we're trying to protect them from or they'll learn to write us off completely and just say, well, mom and dad, they just live in fear and they discredit us because we've, we've not been helpful to them. And one of my big things that I like to talk about, and I want to get your take on it, when you and I were growing up, 
the big thing was stranger danger. Yes. And we do have to be aware, of course. But statistically, we're much more likely to be preyed upon by someone. We, we know. Correct. And so how how do you prepare your kids for that fact without making them hugely distrustful? Yeah. Again, I think discernment's the answer, but my, my kids are notorious for hearing me say, strangers aren't dangerous. Dangerous people are dangerous. And how do we know somebody's dangerous? Well, we evaluate what they say and do. So we paint these pictures that, and really there's other authors before me that helped me inform this as well to give them credit. But we paint these pictures of the, the stranger is somebody who lurks in the corners and they hide in dark hallways and they have these big beards and tattoos. And so kids feel like, well, if you smile at me and you're friendly, you're not a stranger. And then, you know, again, many other professionals have made this great point that then we go out into the world and we say, talk to the waitress and talk to the friendly elderly person on the street and say hello to this person and give them your order. And so our kids learn, wait a minute, who is a stranger? Either nobody's a stranger or everybody's a stranger. There's no evaluation going on there. It's just a, a rule that they can't even follow because it feels so random. Where a better approach, and I, I think we see this in the Bible, is to teach our kids to discern. And we are so busy teaching our kids to comply that we don't teach them to discern and when to defy somebody who tells us to do the wrong thing, which is why practice and role play and examples in social media or on the news are so helpful because we're giving our kids permission to say there are times you should defy an adult. And when are those times? And that you're teaching them and having those conversations so kids know that if anybody ever tells me the wrong thing to do, I never have to listen and mom and dad will support me. Such a great, great point. And I think, too, this goes along with something I say a lot. Even as adults, especially in our Christian bubble, we have a tendency to trust titles over character. Yeah. Oh, that's a teacher. Oh, that's a policeman. Oh, that's a pastor. And we do not want to think that someone with those titles would do anything to our kids. But the reality is that that does happen. And so let's talk to the adults for a minute about their level of trust that is probably a little too trusting. Yeah, I mean, that goes back to you. You said it, and I say it in the book, that we need to teach people and kids to evaluate behavior, not character, because we're notoriously bad at evaluating character. And all over scripture, it talks about deception and how deception works, and that we say one thing with our mouth while evil is in our heart. We we speak peace to our neighbors while secretly doing things that are wrong and immoral. That's You see that language used all the time, yet we tend to think, well, surely I would know. Well, that's the nature of deception. We don't know. People are out to deceive us, to present one way while doing something else. But if I teach an adult or a child to evaluate behavior, then I learn to notice things. I learn to ask questions. I don't always have to take things at face value because I can say, well, that doesn't match up. Or you're asking me to do something uncomfortable. What does that mean? And it's not always somebody out to do something evil or, or immoral, but at least I stop and I ask the question, why? At least I give myself permission to notice when I start evaluating what somebody's saying or doing. And we love to give people the benefit of the doubt. Correct. And yeah. as, as people of faith, we are about forgiveness and grace. And that is so important. Right. I'm not saying we shouldn't do that. 
But when it comes to patterns, that was, I think, the biggest problem in this week's book. The father of the murder victim who wrote the book, he would mention the perpetrator. Well, this happened. And I, I questioned that, but I decided it wasn't that big a deal. Well, when you've said that 10 times, then you're starting to see a pattern and you've got to step back and say, I have to look at this as a whole, not as all these individual, quote, small things. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. That's giving people permission to notice. So when I don't want to say somebody's doing something malicious or evil, then I at least can say, but notice, notice what they're saying. And why does that make you uncomfortable? And at the end of that, you might say, oh, well, there's a good reason for that. Or you might get to the end of it and say, no, I still can't make sense out of it. Well, then then that is there in the forefront of your mind for the next thing that might happen. And so then you are giving yourself permission to notice pattern. And you are able to say, well, I can excuse one or two things in and of themselves. But now I'm seeing the pattern emerging of somebody's character. Yeah, we keep coming back to a couple of themes, character and discernment. And the Bible is full of teaching on both of those topics. And so I think that, you know, we need to also, when we're approaching teaching our children what the Bible is saying, don't isolate the Bible stories that we typically associate with teaching children the Bible. I think we need to be working on themes throughout the Bible. And discernment is a huge one. So just give us a couple easy tips when we are trying to teach our kids discernment, and some of us as adults, we still need to work on that too. What are some good verses or some good practices that will help us with that? Yeah, one of the passages or verses I bring up in the book is Hebrews 5.14. And it says, for the mature, they have their powers of discernment that come with constant practice to distinguish good from evil. And I love that because you break it down and say, what? What is discernment? It's being able to distinguish good from evil. And that comes how? With constant practice. So as an adult, I can look at my young people, whether I'm a youth pastor or teacher or a parent and say, I need, I need to walk young people through situation after situation after situation. And we practice discerning. Was this good or was this evil? And why? You know, there's a lot of moral gray or I used to always give my kids permission to say, you know, break down my argument. And one of my boys would consistently try to find holes in it. And he'd say, well, what if we don't know if it's good or evil? What if it's like, just will I get in the car and go somewhere with them? And we don't know if that's wrong. And I love those kind of questions because what you're doing is you're teaching them to evaluate the situation, which is far better than just coming up with formulas and rules. Always do this or don't do this or never talk to a stranger. Those things do not equip us. But if I'm saying, well, that's a great question. If you're asked to go somewhere alone with somebody and you don't know what is right or wrong, what should you do? The answer is go find another adult and ask them. Have another adult's eyes on the situation. If something makes you uncomfortable and you don't know if you're uncomfortable for the right reasons or wrong reasons, what do you do? Great question. Well, go find another grown-up and ask them to help you discern. That's the wisdom of having mature people in our lives, wise people surrounding us. And when you're uncertain, don't be afraid to ask. I love that. And if you feel like you're in a position where you have to make a decision or you have to give an answer before you're able to Mm. talk to another trusted adult, my advice would be start with no 
you can always change it to a yes later. Great. If you start with yes and it isn't a good situation, it's much, much harder to go back to no. Right. And we know that sometimes it's that desensitizing the grooming behaviors that happen that don't always, they're not evident as bad, but they can digress into bad. And so you're right that if you take a more careful approach, you can always backtrack or you can always say, ah, I think I was wrong. I I maybe overjudged the situation, but I'd far rather my children be wrong and safe than wrong and unsafe and in peril. Oh, exactly. Exactly. And, you know, again, we don't want to make people fearful. That is not how God wants us to live. We do want them to be wise. Yes. And I love that God tells us in James that the one thing he will always give us when we ask for is wisdom. And And generously. He gives it generously. Yeah. Thank goodness for that. We can always ask God for more and more and more wisdom and we will get it. So don't be afraid to go to God and say, I don't know how to handle this. Show me. Yeah. Yeah. I think as adults, we don't do that often enough because we want to be seen as having the answers. That's true. Or, you know, the opposite is we we don't want to be seen as suspicious and we don't want to misjudge somebody because it feels like the worst thing in the world is to judge somebody harshly. And yeah, I don't want to be judgmental or judge someone harshly either. But being discerning means I am willing to be okay with the uncomfortable. I'm really, I'm willing to look at the complexity of something and I'm willing to struggle with. I mean, that is discernment, right? You're struggling between sometimes good and bad, sometimes good and not so good. And how do we make those decisions? And the more we equip our kids, which goes back to a principle in this book, it's role playing and practicing and talking about scenarios the more we're giving our children the ability to think for themselves and evaluate as well. My personal motto is, in God we trust, everybody else gets a background check. (laughs) I love that. (laughs) And you know, there are varying levels of background checks. I'm not saying you actually have to go full bore and get the FBI fingerprint background check. But we can so easily find information about people in this day and age. So check what somebody's putting online. Yeah. You know, if you're a young lady that is being pursued by a young man, how does he talk about women? If he does not talk well about women in general, he is not going to talk well about you and he's not going to treat you well. Right. Ask other people, you know, what's been your experience with so-and-so? It just, it has broken my heart as an investigator to see so many problems come out of relationships where everyone around the the person who was being mistreated could see it, could sense it, could discern it. And that person was not willing to say, 10 people believe one way, I believe the opposite, but I have to be the one that's correct about this. Right, right. That's so important too, because you can see with a six-year-old, you're teaching a six-year-old to evaluate friendships on the playground and whether they share and they're kind or whether they're mistreating people. And with a 16-year-old or a 26-year-old, you're doing the same thing. But now we're talking about the online presence and social media and how they talk about opposite sex and things like that. So you're, you're bringing up this great point that this doesn't stop. The conversation doesn't stop, but it will look differently from a six-year-old to a 26-year-old. And you mentioned a bit ago about youth pastors. I think this is a book that mostly you've geared toward parents, but I would say youth pastors, you need to pick this book up 
And you need to study this and understand how you can help speak into kids' lives on these issues. Because as a parent myself, one thing that frustrated me when my kids were younger is a lot of the people in charge of the youth group are barely older than the youths <laughs> themselves. Yeah. yeah. And they've got, they've got the great energy. They've got the great rapport. They don't have the life experience. Correct. A lot of them weren't even parents themselves. And I actually, I actually had a youth pastor come to me years later and say, you know, I gave you some terrible advice <laughs> back <laughs> in the day. He said, now I have kids. Ooh. Now I've had to struggle with the things that all the parents in the youth group were struggling with. And I, I realized that I didn't have the perspective I needed to yeah. be saying some of what I was saying. Yeah. And so, yes, youth pastors out there, wives of youth pastors that are listening, grab a copy of this book. It will enhance your ministry tremendously. Tell everybody listening how they can get in connection with you and see all of the wonderful resources you have. Oh, well, thank you. Well, I work for the Christian Counseling and Educational Foundation. It's a mouthful. It's www.ccef.org. The books are produced by New Growth Press, so you can look them up. They're also found on Amazon. And I think a, a point to make through all of this is parents don't have to do this by themselves, that there are resources out there. And when you're uncomfortable and you're not sure what to say, we now live with a wealth of of books and resources and ways to bring these conversations up that feel uncomfortable and we don't have to do it alone. What a great point to end on. Thank you again for joining us, for sharing your wisdom with us and for writing this book. It is a wonderful resource. Thank you. Thank you so much. We really talked a lot with Julie about discernment. So I want to investigate what Proverbs chapter three, verses 21 through 24 from the New Living Translation say on that topic. My child, don't lose sight of common sense and discernment. Hang on to them, for they will refresh your soul. They're like jewels in a necklace. They keep you safe on your way, and your feet will not stumble. You can go to bed without fear, and you will lie down and sleep soundly. So if discernment can help keep us safe, how do we make ourselves more discerning? I've got three tips for you in that regard. First, We've got to read our Bibles so that we know what the standards of behavior God expects are. Second, evaluate character based on a person's actions, not on the things that they say. And third, we need to pray for wisdom, which God says he's going to give us whenever we ask for it. So if you're just not sure about trusting someone, read what God's word says is good. Look at that person's actions to see if they line up with that then pray for the wisdom to make good decisions. At least one in seven children have experienced child abuse or neglect in the past year in the United States. And since these are really crimes that tend to be very underreported, I'm sure that the actual number of children affected is even higher. That means there are children in your neighborhood, in your child's school, and even in your church who are being or have been abused. Does your church offer classes or support groups that teach parenting skills? If not, see if you can be that person who gets something started. I looked and looked online for a Bible-based curriculum to use with at-risk families. Let's work with parents about how to recognize 
stressors, and things that might lead to child abuse, or recognize it in the people that are in your child's life. Since I didn't see anything for a church to use as an outreach to parents in the community, I'd like to ask you, if you know of one, please reach out and share it with me. If you liked this episode, be sure you check out some earlier ones. So much great information, so many people with amazing stories. And you can also help someone else begin their journey as a different kind of PI, a person of impact. When you share this episode, subscribe to the podcast or jump on Apple Podcasts and give me a five-star rating with a nice review. The Unlovely Truth is written and produced by me, Lori Morrison. Music is by Neocortex and the artwork is by Shelby Highland. See you all next time. Thank you for listening to this episode that is part of the Spark Media Network that can now be heard on the Edify app.